you turn this morning to Matthew chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. finding your place, let me say this morning that I'm glad for proof. I'm glad for proof in the flesh that I do have a pastoral friend. He's here this morning. His name is Pastor Joel Herrmann. He's from Rochester, New York. We've been friends for many, many years. The thing I love about him is he loves the Bible. And when we talk on the phone, we talk about the Bible. And some of you might know I like that. I like talking about God's word. Joel is my pastoral friend that uh, is going through a time of life transition. You'll be aware of the fact that uh, uh, some months ago, maybe over a year ago, I can't remember the exact timing now, I share with you as a congregation that uh, Joel's wife Janet had gone home to be with the Lord. And uh, so my brother has been in a transition of adjustment. And uh, I appreciate his faithfulness to the Lord. It's a good model for us all. And I'm glad to engage in fellowship with him this morning as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. From the carrying away on, into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Father, this morning, we recognize upon first reading of the text that it speaks of something beyond our comprehension. It speaks of something true, but nonetheless is beyond our capacity as human beings to grasp in the whole. So we pray, as we always pray, that the Spirit of God would be our teacher, that we would find in this brief text something of the depth and the height and the width and the profundity of your plan for man as Christ became a man for our salvation. Thank you for each one that is here this morning that knows that, we pray for any that are here this morning that don't know it in the soul. We ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The other day I was on the deck and watching a, a turkey buzzard in the air. Not a very glorious bird, but nonetheless something to watch. That turkey buzzard catch the, the nuances of the wind and uh, float up in the sky and then dip down and then float up. It looked like fun. I found myself thinking, I wouldn't mind being a turkey buzzard. Of course, turkey and buzzard are not either one a thing that I would necessarily want to be. But you know, the book of Proverbs talks about the special and unique way, the special and unique manner 
the modus operandi of an eagle in the blue sky above you floating on the currents of the wind. It speaks of a snake on a rock beneath your feet. It speaks of a ship out to sea, not Lake Michigan, but out to sea from the safety of the shore. And it speaks about seeing a young man playing up in courting to a young woman. Under the sun, there are a number of marvelous things to watch, to consider, that can, de that can declare something of the glory of God as our creator. Some marvelous things in the ebb and flow of earthly life to see. But today, in this text, we are being asked to see by the Holy Spirit something far greater in magnitude. We are being asked to pay attention to something, in fact, one thing, that reveals the truth of God's glory in greater measure than anything else that we could name. It reveals the glory of God as our Redeemer. And we're speaking, of course, of the birth of Christ. Matthew begins our text for this morning at verse 18 by saying that Messiah was born in this way, in this manner, on this way, or on this wise. Last week that we were together, we ended with the identification of three biblical periods leading up to the fa historical fact of the birth of Jesus as the Christ. The genealogy record presented in verses 1 to 17 traces the legal right of Jesus, who is called Christ, verse 16, to the Jewish throne. The genealogical periods are, period number one, the period of favor expressed. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. During that period, the favor of God was expressed specifically to Abraham and then, of course, to David. From Abraham to David, 14 generations in which the favor of God was uniquely expressed. God made particular promise to those two men, of course, that Matthew introduced to us right at the first, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now that period was followed by the period of faithfulness demonstrated. Not the faithfulness of man, far from it, but the faithfulness of God demonstrated as God remained faithful to his word even when his chosen people were horrifically sinful. God is faithful to himself. And when God makes a promise, that promise cannot fall to the ground because God cannot deny himself. So even during a period of phenomenal unfaithfulness among the people of God past, God demonstrated himself as faithful. And then the third period, I should say, as we identified it last week, has to do with the era of fulfillment begun. As God's appointment of time comes to send God the Son into the world, 
to redeem the world. Thus, we can characterize in summary the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures as having three sections or three parts, the part of God's favor, the part of God's faithfulness, and then the part introducing God's fullness and fulfillment. Favor, faithfulness, fulfillment. And now we come to verse 18 where we read once again of the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew, having introduced to us the idea of Genesis, Matthew 1.1, the word generation, in the Greek, almost letter for letter, Genesis. Matthew, having introduced the Genesis of Jesus by way of genealogy, now, verse 18, is going to introduce the Genesis of Jesus by history, record, as to the Lord's birth. The word birth in verse 18 is exactly the same as the word generation in Matthew 1.1. And both those verses, both those words, render the Bible book name Genesis when you look at it in the original text. Structurally, then, we can say that Matthew first presents the genesis of Jesus by means of genealogy, presented by, or followed by, then, the presentation of the genesis of Jesus historically in time. Genealogy and then the record of history. Genealogy and history. First, Matthew gives us genealogy, and then he gives to us the Lord's history, earthly history. Years ago, I preached a Christmas message that centered around the thought that the birth of Jesus was not his beginning with emphasis upon the theological fact that God the Son had no beginning as the one who is eternally with God and the one who is eternally God. But here in Matthew 1.18, we have a complementary thought of the human beginning of God the Son as born. My dead buddy Martin Luther wrote a little poem that kind of characterizes the thing. Luther wrote, Not flesh and blood the Son, offspring of the Holy One, born of Mary ever blessed, God in flesh is manifest. Good words, Martin. They do apply. God the Son became man. Now sometimes when you wake up on a Sunday morning and you begin to review a text of scripture, you recognize just how absolutely astounding it is the things that you and I commonly believe. Now just think about this. We believe that God the Son became Man, yet not the Father, yet not the Spirit, yet God is one. Is there anything so humanly convoluted as trying to figure out how in the world you maintain the integrity of the triune God? Believing that God the Son became a man, that God the Father and God the Spirit didn't, and that all of our gospel and all of our good news and all of our hope 
is wrapped up in this profound thought that is beyond any preacher in any place at any time that God would become man. That man might be saved. God the Son became a man, not the Father, not the Spirit, yet God is one. Let me tell you, I do not have the capacity to get my mind around that. But I believe it. And I believe it because the Bible says it. And the Bible says it in the very text of a verse of what you and I are going to work with this morning concerning how it is that this actually came to be. Here in Matthew, verse 18, we get to hear how uncreated Jesus was made. Now, if you've been a part of the study in the second hour on Sunday morning, you know that we played with those words now for a few weeks in Hebrews. Recently in that study, we made emphasis on the fact that Adam was created and then made to be king of the earth, yet sinfully failed. And then in contrast, from Hebrews, we built the case that Jesus was uncreated and yet made to be king of the earth and, of course, wonderfully succeeded. Here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we begin to understand how uncreated Jesus was made. Now, I'm simply taking the biblical words and applying them to the biblical case. And I'll tell you, I speak of things that are very hard to understand, let alone to speak clearly. But I tell you, from the depths of my soul and around here in this local church, in the depths of our soul, we believe these things because they are clearly described and declared in biblical scripture. One more thought by way of introduction before we exegete the verse. Jewish Matthew's approach in presenting the Jewish Messiah is uniquely sensitive to the barrage of questions and false accusations that surrounded the purity of Mary during her lifetime and more importantly, concerning the true nature and the origin of her son, the Lord Jesus. One of the unique features of Matthew will be the way in which the Spirit of God prompts him to, uh, in a sense, go out of his way to underscore again and again and again the absolute purity of Mary and Joseph in this entire process of the birth of the Lord Jesus. We begin, number one, with the fact that Matthew, in verse 18, declares the truth of a marital relationship, as indicated by the phrase, his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Most of you have been repeatedly exposed to the truths of New Testament Jewish marriage custom in its three phases or stages or parts. The first stage or part is the marital pledge. And to the consternation of all of our teenagers, the marital pledge in the biblical period, 
the marital commitment in the biblical period was usually made by the parents concerning their children. And every teenager says, not amen to that, but yuck. But nonetheless, the reality is the first stage was the marital pledge. Uh, when a guy and a gal both uh, came to the place of age, uh, the appropriate age for marriage, they could enter into the second period or stage of betrothal. And I am assured by uh, scholars of the historical period that that uh, entering into the uh, of betrothal was indeed for faithful Jewish families a matter of mutual agreement. In other words, uh, nobody had to get married in that sense of, uh, of the thing. Upon mutual desire and consent of the pledged couple, the legal betrothal period would commence. And that period of betrothal, or espousal, as it is called in the King's English, at verse 18, uh, that period uh, was most usually a year. The couple, legally married, although, of course, the woman continued to live uh, during the entire betrothal period with her parents as the husband then has a job to do. The husband goes off and uh, begins to prepare a place for the two of them to be together. You will recognize that language of betrothal in the words of Jesus Christ in the upper room to his disciples when saying, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, ye may be also. Those are wedding words. Those are marriage words. Those are the words of betrothal. And indeed, those that name the name of Christ here this morning can rejoice that we have had the Lord make pledge to us and pledge back to him concerning relationship as provided by our blessed Lord. By the word espouse, verse 18, we know that Mary and Joseph were betrothed or entering into that second period. They had consented to the plan and the pledge of their families to be married. And they were married, legally speaking, and commitment to each other was indeed emotionally secure and high. They had plans to consummate their marriage and live together in about a year's time. So the summary of the three periods are the pledge, betrothal, and life together in their own place. Even at this point, Matthew is deliberately precise in referencing Mary as the Lord's mother when speaking of her espousal to Joseph without reference at all to Joseph as the father of Jesus, because, of course, he was not. And so even in the subtle way in which Matthew unfolds uh, the history uh, record, uh, after giving to us the genealogical record, even in the way that Matthew goes about it, there is this undercurrent uh, demanding our respect for Mary and Joseph's purity and understanding something of the profundity that God is at work in this couple's life big time. 
know from a biblical reference ahead that many of the hometown folk held the view that Jesus was a child born out of wedlock. Of course, Matthew's assertion runs absolutely contrary to the false accusations that surrounded Mary and Joseph. Is that this the son of the carpenter? Is it not this Joseph's son before there was supposed to be a son? It's kind of the implication of the hometown rumor mill. Nonetheless, Matthew brings to us a beautiful undercurrent of emphasis and precision relative to purity so that we can have a clear embrace of our precious and pure Lord Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, not his own. Secondly, Matthew also declares the truth of a moral restriction as indicated by the phrase, before they came together. Jewish couples betrothed customarily restricted themselves from sexual consummation until after the marriage supper week. This was true of Mary and Joseph as to their commitment. They followed the customary extended period of abstinence and lived in a wonderful anticipation of coming together physically for life at the time as appointed. Matthew's declaration of this assertion uh, uh, helps us to understand both something about Mary and, of course, something about Joseph. Matthew's declaration helps us to understand uh, something of Mary's purity. And indeed, Matthew's assertion uh, indicates something of Joseph's purity during this purity, during this period, rather, of betrothal. It is important to note that under the Old Testament law, any sexual activity during the betrothal period was to be handled as adultery. That's significant. And in fact, you know that the biblical activity, the biblical standard, I should say, for all sexual activity is marriage only. That only in marriage can the bed be described as undefiled and the relationship honorable before God. How wonderful it is that both Joseph and Mary restricted themselves morally in honor to God and in honor to each other during the marital period of betrothal. There were no rendezvous in the middle of the night, nor were there any weekends spent at some Mediterranean beach. Abstinence, a period of extended abstinence, was the commitment of Joseph, and it was the commitment of Mary, so that they could come together at the appointed time in honor. Abstinence alone is symbolized by the bride's white dress. And yet in America, no more. 
even Christians have gone soft on the symbols of marriage that have protected family mentality over generations of time. This preacher himself has heard some say, they're only symbols. Nobody is all that much into symbols. Oh, really? But you won't wear a shirt that doesn't have a check on the shoulder. You won't wear shoes that don't have an upside down and a right side U stuck on. And yet people say symbols don't matter. Oh, preacher, you're nuts these days because you're hanging on to things that are of a gone-by era that no matter matter in today's world. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, symbols of purity, symbols of demonstrated faithfulness, uh, symbols of righteousness before God have always mattered, and they matter today. And ultimately, when it comes to relationship in a couple, abstinence matters until God's appointed time in relationship to marriage. Purity matters in the life of every couple. Purity matters in the life of every couple. It does. Purity matters in the life of every couple. You ought to try working pastorally with a couple whose purity of marriage has been corrupted by an outside affair. That's hard work. It can be done by God's grace. It can be done. Relationships can be, uh, once again, sweet and free-flowing and a blessing. But it's work. Hard with God to repair marital infidelity. Purity matters to every couple, but this couple's purity, the couple whose relationship our eyes are driven to by the Spirit of God in this text, this couple's purity matters not only for their own relationship, but it matters for eternity and your relationship and my relationship with God. Because if Mary and Joseph are not pure, as the Bible says they were pure, then you and I run the risk of a contaminated Savior who by no means could die for my sins or yours when he had to die for his own. Our gospel is predicated upon the virgin birth of Christ. And around here, some Western Michigan guru is going to lower his glasses to the end of his nose and say, well, is it necessary for a person uh, to commit their pledge of understanding to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ before they could be saved? Of course, the answer is no. No child understands all the implications of virgin birth 
without an explanation that is far, far, far too early for them to hear. And yet a child can hear of the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A child can hear of Christ died for our sins, rose again the third day, ascended with a promise to return, and they can understand those things and embrace those things, and children can be saved. But what I would say to the Western Michigan scholar is simply this. That child who is really saved at the age of six or seven or eight or nine or ten, when they do confront in the record of Scripture the declaration of the Holy Spirit of God written down concerning the virgin birth of Christ, by no means will they deny it if they are gods and saved. Because the virgin birth is a necessity in the underpinning of our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Matthew's declaration of purity here is untrue, then you and I are fools to have placed our faith for eternal well-being in Jesus as the Lord's Christ. But we are not fools to have believed the Bible and to have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ with a whole heart. Third thing this morning, Matthew declares in verse 18 the truth of a miraculous revelation as indicated by the phrase, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. In the period of betrothal, Mary's restraint, Joseph's restraint, righteously maintained. In the period of betrothal with restraint maintained, Mary is found with child. Our attention beginning next week will shift in this record of history to the perspective of Joseph as he confronts the reality of condition in real time. But for now, we just take Matthew's declaration at face value. Mary was found to be pregnant of the Holy Spirit. Mary was found to be pregnant of the Holy Ghost. Again, taking the Trinitarian view, we can say that God the Father made God the Son to be come Jesus by the action of God the Spirit upon the womb of Mary. Now just listen to this. This is an honest reflection of the Bible's teaching along the lines of the Trinitarian view. God the Father made God the Son to be, Jesus, by the action of God the Spirit upon the womb of Mary. Trinitarian action 
of the one true God. Yet, only the Son, God the Son, became man, and yet God is one. You get it? Oh, yeah. We got it. We got it. So just remember the next time you're talking to your unsaved neighbor or your unsaved family member and you say, I don't know why they don't get it. I don't know why people in America don't get it. I don't know why. Yes, you do know why people don't. You wouldn't get it if it weren't for the same Holy Spirit of God working on your heart to make it tender to the Word of God. You would be yet in your sins. Do not be prideful. Be humble that God has looked down upon you with the same kind of favor that he looked down upon Abraham and that he looked down upon David. And that you have an understanding, that you have a grasp, that you have something that is real about you and the soul that can be attributed to nothing else but the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And so when I read of the work of the Holy Spirit of God upon the womb of Mary, there are so many things I have questions about. There are so many things I don't understand about it. But having been one who has known something personal about the work of the Holy Spirit of God upon my own heart, I, by faith, grasp and embrace this truth of how it was that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was born. How the uncreated was made for the purpose of my redemption. Now, a number of you have been exposed to the reality that early on in church history, some of these great profundities were, were addressed. Back in the early days of the church, a pastor named Anselm noted that before this record of virgin birth by the Holy Spirit, God had demonstrated at least four other ways that he could make a person, make a man. He demonstrated what we call today natural generation. Natural generation is the created way of usual propagation on the earth when a man and a woman come together in marriage and have a, bi a baby. And so you read about that in the Bible. In fact, we read it about it here in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy as so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so begat so-and-so. And by the way, I, I mentioned the fact that the word generation in and, and, uh, Matthew 1.1 1, 1, and the word birth in Matthew 1.18 is almost a letter-for-letter -letter, uh, transliteration of the Bible book named Genesis, but actually the word begat 
as found in verse 2, and then verse 3, and then verse 4, and so on and so forth. That word, too, is built upon the prefix or the root word, gen, that yields to us the English word, generation. And for that matter, for those of us who live out here in the country and have a generator to produce a little electrical power when the lights go out, gen means to produce. And you have in this chapter, 1-1, the genesis of Jesus by way of genealogy. And then you have reference after reference after reference after reference to natural generation leading up to Jesus that we would certainly call an unnatural generation. But we have then this introduction by way of the word Genesis, verse 18, to the historical record. Nonetheless, God can make a person through natural generation. Birds make birds, dogs make dogs, cats make cats, and you made people in your spitting image. Scary, but true. Natural generation. We also know, and Anselm wrote of it in church history, Adam, the first man, was created directly by God without any use of mother or father just spoken word to create Adam out of the dust of the ground. And then in addition, Eve, the first woman, was created by God with the use of Adam's body part. How does that work? I don't know. I know this, that most of the body parts they take out of us, they throw away. I guess they do reuse some today in the marvel of modern medicine. They do reuse some parts. I don't know that anybody wants any of mine, but nonetheless, uh, they're there for the taking, I suppose. Uh, but the reality is, is that Eve was made out of one of Adam's body parts. That's unusual. And of course, then we know in the case of Isaac and in the case of John the Baptist, that God uniquely moved upon an old couple beyond the years of natural generation, empowering them to have a baby out of season. So the young couples in our church, if they come together and they say, well, can I have another baby? Isn't that great? Glad for you. Happy for you. But if Tom and Louise Efting come next Sunday and say, I'm telling you, I don't know, they'd be so happy. I certainly wouldn't be so encouraged in the moment. Of course, we all know that Tom is like 700 years older than Louise, but still, but still, you know, it just would not be uh, uh, easy to take. But nonetheless, Isaac and John the Baptist, born by unusual means. But Matthew asserts at verse 18 a completely different thing. He asserts a marvelous, miraculous revelation. He asserts that the genesis of Jesus was a direct result of the Holy Spirit's work within the womb of Mary. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God is the facilitator of God the Son becoming man. And in such a way so that God the Son does become man, 
for the saving of mankind as elect. And yet, the Father, God the Father, is not human. And God the Spirit is not human. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, I wanted to check with our Jerry Shepherd before today's service, but I never got an opportunity to do so. But J.W. Shepherd is quoted in your bulletin. And it at least looks like he could be related to Jerry in some way. I don't know. But nonetheless, J.W. Shepherd uh, wrote that which is ever true. He said, How, the how of the incarnation is inscrutable. The why of the incarnation is incomprehensible. And the fact is undeniable. The biblical assertion is absolutely clear whether you believe it or not. If by grace you have specific faith in Christ, then you should hear the truth of this text again. It will play towards the strengthening of your soul for you to be faithful to your Lord. Should you be here without the Lord as your own Savior? I confess to you that what we're asking you this morning to wrap your brain around is an impossible thing to believe. And yet, true. God became man. In order to redeem man, from the curse of sin upon man by the very God who initiated our salvation. Your biggest problem, your biggest problem is God. Your only solution is Father, help us all to understand, to the delight of the soul, to the embrace of the heart, to the studying and stabilization of the mind, to the encouragement of every saint in audience this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.